Welcome to another episode of Sermon Extras. I'm Todd Bolander, and once again, I'm here with Jerry Caesar, pastor at Gulf Coast Community Church in St. Petersburg, Florida. We're going to talk about recent sermons. How are you today, Jerry? I'm doing well. Thank you, Todd. We're going to continue on in our series um, of discussions about the Disciple 1.0 sermon series at the church. And again, this is late June now, almost July 2019. We're going to dip back a few weeks and then bring ourselves current in this episode. Sounds great. So we'll pick up with part 12. We'll pick up with part 12 of the series, and that is destination transformation. We're still in the Sermon on the Mount. This was the last uh, message you gave on the Sermon on the Mount. This right. finishes up Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 29. And you spend much of the sermon describing the importance uh, that culture plays in human institutions, whether it's families or businesses or any type of group or team, that uh, culture plays a huge part in that. In fact, this is in large part what Jesus is dealing with here is culture of those who will be his disciples. So can you remind me about the definition you were using for culture? Well, what what is going on, I think, in this is Jesus is completely redescribing what the ethos, the the, the values, the, the way of life that his people will live by. Um, Culturally, here in America, we have a certain set of things that are acceptable and unacceptable. It's perfectly acceptable to use your credit card and buy things on credit and pay for it over time and pay interest. It's perfectly acceptable to sleep with your girlfriend. It's perfectly acceptable uh, to just dismiss people in your life if they aren't, you know, uh, doing anything that benefits your life. So there are a lot of things that are perfectly acceptable within a culture that one lives in. Uh, in the kingdom of God, Jesus is saying, this is the culture by which we are going to live. This is the way we are going to live. Much like the law did in the Old Testament, where the, the Lord comes and says, uh, this is how you'll treat the poor. This is how you'll treat the needy. This is how you'll deal with a leper. This is how you'll deal with, you know, and, and, and walk down the, the list. So Jesus is coming along and he is saying, this is how I want you to be, or the kind of culture that you're to be. And so he's he's changing the entire dynamic of what this people is to be. He's, he's get casting a vision for a whole new way of life. And his people are to embrace that vision for a whole new way of life. Well, he starts off this section by talking, by saying, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So how does that relate to culture? Well, the culture that he's describing is in fact fraught with difficulty. If the gate is narrow, the, the way is uh, is, is hard, uh, difficult. That, that's what narrow is referring to. It's restricted. Uh, this isn't going to be an easy way to go. You're going to have to press hard. You're going against the current of society. And so his people have to do what he said in this context, starting in chapter five, working our way up to this point in chapter seven. And this hard way, this difficult path, this narrow way, uh, in effect, he's saying, you can't just live any way you want and be one of my disciples. You have to be transformed and come under obedience to my commands to be my disciple. And that's going to include forgiving. That's going to include praying for your enemies and those who persecute you. That's going to, to include uh, dealing with lust in the heart and the, the variety of things that are listed in chapter 5 and, and viewing the world differently. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. 
Blessed are those, uh, are the meek rather, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. We don't naturally think of those people as blessed, so we've got to begin to reprogram ourselves to, to view the world differently uh, in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven, to live in that place that is the kingdom of heaven, the empire of heaven. And again, as we remind, uh, I've reminded people regularly in the series, you don't have to be in Rome to be in the Roman Empire, and you don't have to be in heaven to be in the kingdom of heaven. We're called to live in the kingdom of heaven now. What do you say then to people who understand this as a passage about finding God or obeying the gospel, not obeying the gospel, but coming to hear about Jesus, becoming a believer, that it's difficult even to find out that so very few people are even, that that there's a limited number of people who are actually going to respond to um, Jesus's offer of salvation, sort of a many are called but few are chosen type of passage. What do you say to people who think of the narrow gate in those terms? Well, you know, I, I, it's it's an analogy or a metaphor, if you will, that is useful probably for a number of things. However, in Matthew, based on the context, it's very clear that that is not what Jesus is talking about. Unless, of course, and this gets back to th- something we've talked about in, a, in, in each of these uh, messages, if we, t- if we take this as just a broken apart, you know, Jesus, is, or Matthew's just grabbing sayings of Jesus and throwing them together, well, then maybe we would take it that way. Um, but it's not. He's, it's in a context, and the context is the Sermon on the Mount. He is, he's introducing the conclusion to the sermon. This, he's not going into his summary, or his rather his conclusion, to say, I've said all of this, now what? And so the narrow gate fits that, and it's a, he, the whole thing is, begins by this announcement that Jesus is proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So, so we have the kingdom of heaven at hand. We have this sermon that describes what life in the kingdom of heaven is like and how we are to live in such a way that his will is done in earth as it is in heaven. And then we have this, this declaration about the narrow gate and, and, and the fact that we have a difficult path to follow. So doing these things I've just said that will enter into the kingdom of heaven is going to be that. Um, so to make it about... Um, how few people are going to get in, that's not the topic of his discussion. Um, Now, it it might well be few, or it might be many, depending on how many are willing to accept the challenge that is there. But the the narrow and broad way isn't a numerical thing. It's the difficulty of the task that is being emphasized, and especially when you look at what follows, because what follows is a repeated instruction to do what he says, to do what he says in, in a variety of ways. You'll know them by their fruit, um, you know, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, but only he that does the will of my father. And then there's the house built on the rock versus the house built on the sand who did not put these sayings into practice. So it is hard work, okay, to go back to the analogy of hard, difficult. It's hard work to build a house on a rock versus on sand. Much harder work. But that difficulty is how that house stands and it's rooted in. So the difficulty of both passages, as it were, at the beginning and end of this conclusion is, is fundamentally about doing the sayings of Jesus or putting into practice, performing, some would say, uh, the teachings of Jesus. Well, focusing on that idea of performance and practice, you had a quotation from Professor Stanley Hauerwas that struck me perhaps not in the way that you intended it, but I wanted to unpack that a little bit. And uh, what, can you read the whole quotation? Because it was about practice. Right. And I've got it. I mean, I've, I've it's the part I've excerpted is, is really a half of a sentence, but uh, I, I paraphrase the other part for simplicity, but uh, like any true performance, and I'll, I'll tell you where the quotation uh, proper begins, but like any true performance, the practice that makes it possible doing what Jesus says, quote, takes us out of ourselves only to return us to ourselves fuller, richer, and more deeply changed. So what is it that Hauerwas in his original quotation is saying takes us out of ourselves? Uh, Performing something, practicing something. So he's using an analogy and applying an analogy from the world of of, of performing arts, if you will, whether we're talking musical instrument, whether we're talking a gymnast, whether we're talking, you know, a dance. Um, 
the, the person that is practicing and doing uh, their activity over and over and over, there really is for that person. Um, and there's this, this, this is a quote that comes from a, uh, a, a, a paper that he wrote called Performing the Faith, which is in the middle of a book that he wrote, which is titled Performing the Faith. So it's kind of the, the uh, title paper of that book, which is a collection of essays, and, and just love that chapter. But in effect, uh, when, when we perform, you can't really make a, a clear distinction between practice and performance. So a gymnast, let's just take this, or a musician that is practicing for a future performance is performing. Right. Because if they aren't performing, they're going to get to the performance and it'll be something different than what they were doing. So for them, it's all one act. It's all one thing. And so uh, when Jesus says to, to do what he says, to put it into practice, to uh, walk out these things, what he is doing is he's saying, hey, like you might tell a musician, put your fingers, if it's a guitarist, put your, 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 your index finger here, your next finger here, and little finger here. And of course, the guitarist is first time through saying, my, my, my hand won't do that. You know, I can remember the first time I did a G chord on, on my guitar. And I wanted to cheat and do it the, the simple way where I used not my pinky finger at the bottom, but the other one. But my hand won't do that. And so you, you have to force your body into activities that are very unnatural for the body in order that the body learns to do them naturally. And a gymnast does the same thing. He practices things that, I mean, honestly, I'm, to watch gymnasts, male or female, to me is one of the most amazing things to watch in all the world because it's mind-boggling to me what they can do. Um, I've got a little granddaughter that has taken gymnastics now for a couple of years, and she's young, and she's certainly uh, never going to be an Olympic uh, gymnast. She's not taking it at that sort of level and, and, and with that kind of intensity. Uh, but just to see her, the things she does, you know, she and her little brother were playing on monkey bars recently and hanging on them and her mom decided to take photos. So she just starts basically uh, boasting in herself by hanging from one arm here, hanging from one arm there, sticking her leg out, her arm out and acting, demonstrating in the pictures rather clearly that this was a piece of cake for her. And, and, and so it had become natural. But I do remember when she first started doing it, when it was very tiring and hard for her to get a couple of bars down the monkey bars or, or something of that nature. So the development of strength. Well, likewise, for the believer, when, when we begin to put into practice and do what Jesus says, at first it seems totally unnatural, unnatural to forgive, totally unnatural to think of blessed are those who mourn, totally unnatural to, to put out the lustfulness of our eyes. And, and we could go down the list to love our enemies. Let's take that one to pray for those who persecute us. The first time we do it, it's probably going to be a little bit more like, okay, God, I am, I am going to pray for my persecutors. I don't want to. I, this seems so weird to me. I, I don't even know what to do with it, but we're going to pray. But there will come a day when we are persecuted and our immediate response is prayer. Or like Stephen in Acts chapter 7, where he's, he prays for the forgiveness of those that are, that are stoning him. I, that's hard for me to comprehend, but obviously there's a level of practice and, in that. And so this performance, if you will, this practice takes us out of ourselves, and yet it returns us to ourselves a more full or complete version of what we are ever intended to be. When I heard that quotation... <clears throat> It made me think about all the times where I knew that I didn't have it within me to do what I felt like the Lord was prompting me to do. And that moment of feeling like obedience means trusting that if if I'm called, ordered, told to do something, I'm just certain that this is what God is asking, requiring of me that I will be able to do it to some level, whether right. the best in the world or not so amazing, but nevertheless be able to accomplish the thing that I'm feeling like he's called me to do. And so there are moments where I can remember thinking, well, this is really strange and I don't want to do it. So I would have to pray, Lord, you have to, you have to do something here for me. And, and it, so it just made me think of the 
the part about taking me out of myself, uh, sometimes we talk about putting ourselves to the side or submitting ourselves to the Spirit. It made me think of the way that the Holy Spirit functions to provide grace in those moments where I, I know that this is uncomfortable, difficult, one might say impossible for, right. for me. I can't do this thing. And then all of a sudden I find myself doing some version of it. Um, then to return me to myself after that was done. So I, I think of times like walking up to people I don't know and asking them about their their views of Jesus um, in a mall. I remember doing that times and thinking, I really don't want to do this, but I really feel like the Lord is prompting me to go talk to this person right, right here. And right. I don't know why. Or sitting with a family member or friend and they're um, telling me about something difficult and me saying, well, you, I, this is going to sound trite. And I, and I, my modern sensibility tells me that I shouldn't say this, but I really feel like I need to tell you that you have to, you have to move forward in believing Jesus, even though, and doing what the scripture says, even though everything around you might push you to do something otherwise. So is this like, it sounds to me like Hauerwas is describing another version of stepping out in faith, trusting in the Holy Spirit, submitting to the Spirit's will. I, I don't know whether or not Hauerwas would agree with that, but I think you're getting close to the mark there. I, uh, you might put it this way, and I, as you described it, the thought came to my mind, sometimes God brings us to the end of ourselves. And, and so this idea of taking us out of ourselves to return us to ourselves, he brings us to the end of ourselves, but not to leave us at the end of ourselves, but to transform our very selves into something that we never could have been otherwise. Um, you know, I, I spent a number of years in, in, in sales, and I'd have salespeople come in whining uh, with some regularity about how difficult it was and how hard it was. And I would regularly tell them, well, if this was easy, everybody would be doing it and it wouldn't pay very much. And, and similarly, when you think of the gymnast, if, if what they were doing was natural and they didn't have to be brought out of themselves, well, everybody would be doing it and nobody would watch it on TV and who would care that you got a medal? <laughs> and, and, and so, yeah. so, so, so likewise, in, in the kingdom of God, the things that Christ calls us to, they're not easy. They are difficult. But that's what makes them worthwhile, because he's actually coming to do something different in the world. What we're inclined to do will not bring about anything different, because that's what everybody's inclined to do. Right. What he's trying to do is transform the world, and so if we're going to transform the world, revolutions, as they say, well, they come by blood. And in this case, it's by us laying down our lives and a willingness to come to the end of ourselves. When I listened and just meditated more on that quotation, it's, again, whether or not he intended it or you intended it, it made me think of all the times where I had looked back after doing something that was countercultural, difficult, contrary to social pressure, and remembering the tension within myself prior to it of going, this is going to be so hard. I don't want to do this. I'm going to be so embarrassed. I don't want, what if it goes wrong? And then walk and going ahead forward, feeling like I was called to say that thing at that time or step out in faith in that way, getting over myself, so to speak. And then looking back afterwards and going, oh, well, that, well, that wasn't so bad or that wasn't so hard. And so that the next time I stepped into that sort of situation, the internal debate about whether or not to commit to that was much briefer. Right, right. Yeah, and, and that is a very good application of this very point because you're applying it, say, in terms of mission, you're applying it in terms of what Christ calls us to do and interacting. And it applies in all of these areas. It might be that the Lord calls you to do something like go on the mission field, which is going to ruin your career. You know, I'm going to go spend two years on the mission field and your family will think you're crazy. Um, the mission, the mission field themselves, the recipients at the mission field might love you, but that's at that point has nothing to do with it. Your family will think you're crazy or you, you, you believe you're called to make a significant donation, which of course your family will think you're crazy. So there are a lot of ways in which these kinds of things could affect us.
Peace like a river attendeth my way When sorrows like sea billows roll Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say It is well, it is well with my soul In the next section, Jesus tells his disciples to beware of false prophets, and he says... They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. And then he goes on to a couple of analogies about this type of plant can't give you that fruit, and that type of plant can't give you that type of fruit. And he says, so thus, verse 20, thus you will recognize them by their fruits. He doesn't tell me what any of those bad fruits are that I'm supposed to be looking for in this analogy, parable. What what are the bad fruits that will help me identify false prophets? That's a great question. I And people fill that in with all sorts of things. Um, they go to other texts and so forth. I tend to think that the best way to fill it in is look at what follows it, which runs, as it were, in um, uh, parallel to it. Because not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, uh, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So you have these characters who address him as Lord, but that's not sufficient. They have to do the will of the Father which is in heaven. So the bad fruit is not doing the will of the Father which is in heaven. Um, others will say, many will say to me on, on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? So there's that prophet idea again. And in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. So doing the will of the Father versus doing evil. So to not do the will of the Father is to do evil. And 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 so I, I think that the fruit that we're looking for is the fruit of, of one who is putting into practice the sayings that have been taught to us in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, so so we could maybe maybe we could um, uh, bring that a little bit more down to earth uh, yes, in light of the Sermon on the Mount. Well, I, and I ask this because I can remember a moment in my life when a family member came to me as a fledgling Christian and was was inclined towards certain types of people who called themselves Christians and pastors, names you would know, and when I suggested that maybe there would be some better people to learn from, some better mm-hmm. um, Bible teachers to come to an understanding of what Jesus was doing and teaching, uh, she very pointedly said to me, well, how do I know the difference between the good ones and the bad ones? How can I evaluate? I'm new at this. Who? Right. How can I evaluate? And I said, well, look at what they're doing. And I filled out a few things, but I would rather, and I think I was generally on target. I I look back on that moment and wish I had a fuller answer for her. But um, what are some things that you think Jesus would say to her, you know, 2019 um, about knowing the difference between the false prophets and the... And, and, and the true, right. The, the, I think the immediate context, if we just think, where did this Sermon on the Mount body of it end? Well, it ended quite clearly uh, with be generous, don't worry, be generous, and, and don't judge, be generous. So having an evil eye, uh, greedy, uh, th- there are many prophets who make it very evident, both in the day of Jesus and the apostles and in our day, um, that greed is often a motivation, and Paul speaks of this, for some who would, uh, as it were, peddle the word of God, to borrow that phrase from Paul. And, and so there are people today who it's rather clear that they are peddling the word of God for profit. And, um, you know, one particular preacher who uh, has a large television ministry who's worth, his net worth is, uh, personal net worth is somewhere in the realm of $1 billion, uh, all from doing ministry and donations and the like, um, and, and, and brags about how he, you know, flies around in his airplanes, not singular, but plural. Um, greed would be a clear 
evidence. Um, and, and, and so that would be one of the things that we could see. Uh, we go back to chapter 5 um, in the first half of uh, the body of the sermon. Uh, you see a, a number of factors, of course, uh, lusting. And, and, you know, we've, if you as probably remember, I know you're pr- probably young, but old enough to remember the um, fallings of many televangelists that sure. their lives were uh, fraught with lust. And this part of Florida so was notorious in one big one. Yes, yes, this part of Florida was indeed notorious. And and uh, there, it's sad because oftentimes people would excuse Christians would excuse their behavior uh, as well. They're 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 men of God, and and you know look at the fruit of their ministry. But but the kind of fruit Jesus would say to look for. We would find there in, in in the Sermon on the Mount would indicate that they were not doing the will. Well, of the that's Father. an interesting point, um, because I think that is a common. Well, look at a common retort to when people like that are say returned to ministry, given back their positions. They say, "But look at the totality. Look at all the people that they serve. Look at the large churches they planted. Look at all of the members. Look at." And Jesus doesn't seem to be as concerned with that as much as their personal character and conduct. Um, so what's the rejoinder? Uh, if people are calculating that way, influence for God versus this indiscretion, even if there were many, but or this compiling of a large net worth, how, how do we say to them, or what do you think is the Matthew's response to that sort of dismissal of people like that, ministers like that? Well, I, I'm not sure if this directly applies or indirectly applies, but I can't imagine that the same Jesus who frequently tells people don't don't say anything about this, you know, go show yourself to the priest, to the leper in chapter 8, but don't tell anyone about this. Um is so overly concerned with his popularity that he's willing to accept as his spokespeople people that are com- disobeying what he said, but at least they have influence. Uh, you know, well, Hitler had influence. I'm not sure that that would justify calling him a man of God. Um, well, in fact, I'm quite sure it would not. Um, and, and so uh, popularity itself is never sufficient. The question is, what is it we are promoting? Um, because the people will become like that which they follow. Ultimately, yeah. As I look down again at the, not everyone who says to me, "Lord, Lord," will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The the response might be something something to the effect of, uh, and I think you mentioned this that there are a lot of people who claim to be Christians, even people who teach the Bible right a lot and have large ministries that Jesus, and and things that might appear to be successful ministries. Right. Uh, If you look at the next verse, Mm -hmm. uh, verse 22, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons in your name, perform many miracles? I mean, those are very missional activities. Uh, They they, they are truly missional activities that those are the things that draw the crowds. Uh, And yet I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. So celebrity pastorate does not constitute... (laughs) <laughs> does not constitute a pass on doing the will of the Father. That's correct. I mean, hey, there are many godly pastors who have a large following, um, but there are plenty of ungodly people that have a large following. And I will say that there's clearly a temptation. I mean, the path of the walking the path with a large following is is fraught with temptation for any leader. Well, I'll move on to the next message in the series, and that was the healing and restoring power of Jesus. It was part 13, and and that is Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. And now Jesus has concluded his teaching, we call Sermon on the Mount, and it's it's fascinating that at the end of chapter 7, when Jesus finished uh, quoting, and now I'm reading 28 and 29, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And then we get 
a sequence of interactions with people specifically about Jesus's abilities, his authority, his power to do things. In particular, the centurion always fascinates me, that the centurion came up and talks about authority and doesn't even want Jesus to come into his house, or is doesn't is it that he doesn't want Jesus to go out of his way, like he doesn't want to bother him or put him out? Do you think that's why he tells him, you don't need to come to my house? I've often thought that, but I, I the more I look at it, I wonder. I mean, there are a couple of options here. On, on the one, he just the, what we have are his words which say, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. Ah, right. So, so either I have to conclude, one, that he was aware of the Jew-Gentile discrepancy, and, and that as a Gentile, he was not worthy of Jesus' Jewish presence. But as, as a centurion, as a either Syrian or Roman, it's hard to imagine that he would have bought into that sentimentality, if you will. Uh, in other words, it would be hard for him to see himself, because he's a Gentile, as being unworthy of Jewish presence. In fact, quite the contrary, their, their tendency was to view Jews with disdain. So, so while that could be it, uh, it could also be, and I, I, I think this may be getting closer to the mark, that here's, a, here's and keep in mind, for the person hearing Matthew's gospel or reading Matthew's gospel, of course, in the first audience, most of them would be hearing it, not reading it. But for the person hearing Matthew's gospel or reading it, you've just gotten through the Sermon on the Mount, which talks about loving your enemies, peace. And of course, we have Isaiah's prediction that the law would go forth from Jerusalem and uh, the nations would stream to it. And what would they do? They would beat their swords into plowshares and their uh, spears into pruning hooks, which is to say they will learn peace instead of war. Right. And so Jesus comes down the mountain. He, like Moses, who came down the mountain, Moses came carrying the, the tablets of stone with the, the law written on it. Jesus is carrying nothing because he is the law. And he comes down to the people, and this centurion, who is one of the nations that would stream to it, is maybe maybe he's recognizing how unworthy his lifestyle and preoccupation is, or uh, occupation is with with the kingdom of heaven and what Jesus is calling him to. And there's a genuine sense of his unworthiness that he's actually experiencing, but yet he believes in the restoring power of Jesus. And embraces it for himself. And that, I think, also fits with the broader context a, a lot better. So certainly more going on there, uh, keying in on the word worthy than than just, I don't want to put you out of your way. Exactly. I think, I think you're right. Okay. When he goes into the part about, you don't need to come to my roof, I'm unworthy, all you have to do is speak the word. All you have to do is say something, and my servant will be healed from from the ailment it says he was that his servant was paralyzed at home and so all you have to do is say something and and he'll be fine and jesus marvels at this statement of faith right what is it that jesus is marveling at it seems to me that what jesus is marveling at is his understanding of the authority of jesus that a word from Jesus will restore a person, whether that person is present to hear Jesus' lips itself take it, say it, or whether that person gets it from the lips of another, or whether that person never even hears it. But Jesus has spoken, and th th this centurion understands authority. Uh, and that's great faith. And I think, I I'm suspicious that Matthew would not have delineated this part of the story as, with as much detail as he did had it not had relevance to the rest of the story that is going to continue from here. That he's, he's delineating how uh, this great faith was an understanding of authority because most of us who have weak faith, a lot of times it's because we don't understand the authority of Jesus, which leads into that next message that we, that we got to on um, the unbelievably demanding Jesus. Right, then let's let's move into that because in that message you you key in on that interaction in particular as a 
as a narrative string to follow from the crowd saw Jesus's authority to the centurion saying, I'm a man under authority and I get it. I know how, and I have authority and I know how this works. And Jesus saying, wow, this is the greatest faith I've seen. This is, this guy gets it. Right. To moving on to Jesus gives orders and there's a dim interaction with a couple of people and you key in on these interactions or response to his command as a demonstration of how people respond in faith or not. Right. And how Jesus then turns what, what he thinks of that, how he evaluates that sort of response. And you put a lot of weight, as I was listening to, you focus on that in verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders. In other words, he commanded, a right. uh, single word in Greek, he commanded them to go over to the other side. And so you make the point that Jesus has given the people standing around, those who, if we're to understand, are seeking to follow him, are interested, may wish to become disciples, want to follow Jesus after this, you know, inter- all these interactions, healings, h- hearing his teaching, then watching him put it into action, performing healings. Matthew highlights these two individuals, this scribe who comes up and then this disciple who comes up. So tell me about what it is that about Jesus commanding in this particular instance that that keyed you into that as understanding how to, how to work out what these interactions, what Matthew right, is trying to right. describe for us. Well, it, it's it's clearly not just the grammar itself, though. There's some there's some value to looking at how this grammar is used because there, that would tell you that it could well be important. But it's not just the grammar. I mean, obviously he commanded them. It is strange, so it, it catches your attention. It's always caught my attention that what a weird word there. Um, but. The, the, the narrative, the story, the pattern in the story, I think, helps us. So as we've already referred to, the Sermon on the Mount, he's been giving orders that whole time, and then it ends with a reference to the way he taught with authority. Goes to the leper. What happens? Be clean. One word. He's, he's restored. He's a centurion. One word. And it's highlighted and emphasized. He's made clean. Uh, in verses 16 and 17, I think it's 16, he uh, uh, d- delivers demoniacs with a word, <laughs> a word. And, and, and then so here he gives a word, go to the other side of the lake. Interestingly, go, right? This is, he says to this one, go when he goes, that one go. And of course, Jesus tells the centurion, go, and it'll be according to, done to your servant. So, this repetition of this idea, go, connected with the command. And then, of course, following that, he stills the wind and the waves, and they obey him with what? A word. And then he delivers the demoniacs with the same word, go, that we've been looking at. And and, and then, of course, he forgives a man's sins and heals the paralytic, his same man, uh, again, with a word. So this, the narrative does put emphasis on the power of his word. And, of course... He commands them, go. They do, in fact, get there and eventually go and, 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 and arrive. And, and, so, and, and therein lays the mission of God. And, of course, they arrive on the other side to be in the middle of a Gentile area. Right. Which I can't help but think of go and make disciples of all nations so that the same emphasis in his instruction and authority is, is being uh, previewed here. So in the, ever since he came down from teaching, we have vignettes of people observing his authority, people talking about authority, Jesus giving single word commands, something happening based on that. And so Matthew keeps sort of uh, almost leapfrogging back and forth between the two, you might say, you know, daisy chaining them together right. so that these two ideas are playing in concert along and th- then you get to these, in the middle of all of this sequence, you have these two fellows who walk up. Right. And the one is a scribe and says he'll follow him anywhere. And Jesus gives this really odd response to the man and says, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. 
Now, in your sermon, you interpreted that as a get lost. Yeah, pretty much. You know, <laughs> get lost. Beat it, fella. Yeah. Um, how do we get from foxes have holes right. and birds of the airs have, right. but uh, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head? How do we get from I'll follow you anywhere to talking about these animals have places, but I have no place, and that meaning no thank you or go away or no, right. you're, no you're not going to follow me wherever? Right. So, so we have to do a little bit of mirror reading here. So, in, in other words, you, you hear Jesus' response— what he says, but then you have to say, what would that make, what kind of context or what kind of implication would, would have to have been in the scribes, uh, teacher of the law, however you want to, to say that, in his mind when he said, I will follow you, in order for what Jesus to have said, or what Jesus said to have made sense. And, and so this guy clearly envisioned, it would seem, that following Jesus uh, was a life of acceptance, a life of applause, uh, because what Jesus is describing is a life of rejection. Uh, in fact, he gets to the other side of the lake and the people ask him to leave. Yeah. He goes to his hometown. Interesting, the, the, the foxes have uh, holes, birds of the air nests. Son of man has no place to leave his nest. So, our Leah's head, next two stories, Jesus is rejected. He arrives and, 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 and they tell him to leave. He goes to his hometown, just to point out, and, and there's, there's some uh, accusation that he's a blasphemer. Uh, so, and as we will learn later in Matthew, he's eventually kicked out from there. So, rejection is part of uh, his story. And I, I think we can infer backward, if you will, that this teacher of the law who was highly respected amongst the people. For him, being a teacher of the law meant highly re- being highly respected. And, and, and he had some, as w- one fellow put it, I don't know if this is quite the right way to put it, but, but I think it kind of helps us get to the point. One fellow put it, he said, uh, this guy thought he could stay home and follow Jesus. Um, <laughs> you know, and, 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 and there's no home if you're following Jesus. And, and I think that does kind of get to the point. This guy, I think I would word it this way. This fellow thought he could be uh, well acclaimed and, and praised and follow Jesus. And Jesus is saying, no, you're going to be rejected if you follow me. And so you don't get it. You, hmm. you, you don't get it yet. And of course, I think the narrative would say that if this guy really was all about following Jesus, he'd already be in the boat, or at least lining up to follow Jesus into the boat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And instead, he's making an announcement for all to hear. I see. So rejection. So that's how this means, no, no, you're not ready, is you want, you're not ready for the type of rejection that following me will mean. I think that's a fair way to put it, yeah. So the next fellow is uh, a young, it doesn't say who it is, uh, one of the disciples, another person, and he says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now he implied, I'll follow you wherever you go, Right. so I'll be your disciple also. And it says he's one of the disciples, so he's been following along. Sure. Um, and, he, and he says, before, before we cross the lake here, I'm assuming, and, right. and I follow you into this other territory, right. um, I've got to go bury my father. And Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. Right. Tells him, no, right. you're not allowed to do that. What does it mean... To let the bed clearly, the dead cannot bury themselves. Right, the dead can't bury themselves, nor can one dead person bury another dead person. Either way, you want to look at that. (laughs) (laughs) I I wasn't even thinking a dead person trying to bury himself, but yes, that's exactly what I said. Right, right. Dead people cannot (laughs) bury other dead people, nor can one dead person bury himself. Okay, good. That's a nonsensical statement on its face. Right. Right. Uh, Jesus seems to be commanding something impossible or un- so unrealistic as to right. be absurd. W- what does this even mean? How does this mean? N- clearly, it means a, 
uh, a denial. He says, follow me, let the... Okay, so whatever you just suggested, the answer is no to that. Just follow me instead. Right, right. But what sort of response is let the dead bury their dead? It sounds... You could accuse Jesus of insensitivity, first of all, which is why you called it... Unbelievably demanding Jesus, Unbelievably demanding (laughs) Jesus. It, It screams of insensitivity... People would say, "What would if I said this to someone?" People would say to me, "What would Jesus do?" Jesus would let him go bury his dad, right? And then I would be stuck in. But in this very instant, no, Jesus didn't, right? Right? Guy, yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So what do we do with what would Jesus do? Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so what does it mean? Leave the dead to bury the dead. Uh, great. Good. Good question. I. It's been often explained as, oh, he must be referring to, because of the absurdity of letting dead people bury dead people, um, th- it's often explained as, well, let the spiritually dead bury the dead. But but I, I think that stretches even further than let the dead bury the dead, number one, because what what are we as Christians? I mean, if that's the case, then we have to take it as a command, and we have to take it as a universal principle that only unbelievers, uh, spiritually dead people, if you will, are allowed to conduct funerals and be in that or be morticians. I mean, all of the above. And, and I think that's absurd. Uh, I think uh, it's absurd on the f- fact that how, how would you even give people the right to figure out who spiritually uh, dead people are versus spiritually alive people? That's not really their job. So uh, what is clear from Jesus' statement is that he is saying, you follow me, that is not your concern right now. Mm-hmm. And 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 so whatever it is implied to mean, it's it's as you said earlier, don't do that. And and there's never been strong agreement on what it means because it's not clear what it means. And even the people that study the language of that day, just basically their argument is it's just a way of dismissing that objection that the fellow had. It's not intended to be instructive per se on what to do. Uh, and that's how we use language. Language is not uncommonly used that way. And Jesus, when he became a man, he became a man who would use language right. much as we do as human beings. Um, and and so what is clear, I mean, Jesus had said and had given a command, go to the other side. What I think, and, and, and this is speculative, admittedly, on my part, had this guy just gone to line up and get in the boat and said, Lord, I'm following you. Now, it, you, you probably are aware my dad is either dying or dead or whatever the case was. We don't know exactly the situation. Uh, so let me know what I should do about that, but I'm following you. There's a difference between asking him what you should do about something and telling him what you need to do in the face of a direct command. All right. And we have to assume that Jesus knew his audience, uh, I mean— We'll see in a minute. He knows that what they're thinking in their hearts in one audience. So, so he knew his audience, and um, that he knows what this guy needs to do, and so that he had that in mind when he told the fellow to go to the other side. Um, so it seems like anyone wanting to follow Jesus would be lining up at that point. So I might be able to restate it as follow me, because at this moment. That is your highest priority. Yes, um, that would exactly be it. Because of that first, which was placed at the front of the sentence as well. But first, let me go, you know, mm-hmm. bury my father first. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, yeah, that, it was an issue of priorities. Um, and Jesus is funny about priorities. We, we always want to say, well, there's God and there's family and there's, you know, work. And, and we go down the list, finally we get to church and... I, I don't know how you can really fully do that. I, I, I have a hard time trying to sort all that out because what that does, I mean, God's my first authority. Well, we don't have Jesus coming up and telling us things in person these days. So where do we generally hear from God? We hear from God through one another. And so it, it, that sort of structure often becomes a way that we can dismiss every command of Jesus that might come through preaching of a message, the call of brothers and sisters in their need. Well, my family comes first. Well, this guy tried that one on Jesus. It didn't work out so well. (laughs) (laughs) Ouch. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Well, I I think it plays back to if priority is the issue at heart here, it plays back to I have authority 
to give commands like this. Um, and it's not vanity. It's actually in your best interests. Right. And so when you put anything else ahead of me, you're not, he'll say in another passage, you're not worthy of me. Anyone who, you know, doesn't, doesn't follow me, they're not worthy of me. And in fact, that's what the, that's what the Roman centurion, uh, thought. And it turns right. out, in fact, he was greatly, uh, applauded for right. recognizing Jesus's authority. Right. Right. Yes. And, and we will, we will see that the authority of Jesus, when he gives a command, it is to restore us to full humanity. It is to restore us uh, to people that are in our right minds, to restore us to forgiven people, to restore us to people that can now walk and pick up our mat and actually go home. You know, if this, if this fellow really wants to go home, mm-hmm. uh, like, the, 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 like the paralytic is able to go home, then he's to follow Jesus' order and, and obey it. And, and there's a part of me that wonders. There's a part of me that wonders if he really understood the authority of the one that was there in front of him, if he wouldn't have been more like the centurion and said, my father lies at home dying. Or maybe even he just died. But say the word. And I'll stay here with you because you can take care of that from afar. I have often thought that it is not so much that that the biggest struggle in the Christian life is not so much just understanding what the Bible says, although in points that's that is difficult, it takes work, but it's actually having obedient faith, in other words, the type of trust, the belief in it to do what it says, to do what Jesus commands, that is actually the hardest part of the Christian walk. I, th- I think that's right, and you know as well as I do, and sometimes it, it's um, it's baffling to say it nicely when you observe that there are plenty of people who don't work all that hard at trying to do the hard work of understanding what Jesus says, but they're very quick when they understand it, or even if they misunderstand it, to do what they believe he said. And somehow I think it just seems that God honors that sometimes in a way that makes those that are working hard to understand what he said just scratch their heads. Don't ask me how I know. And 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 so it's it's fascinating, but that is the harder part. And I think God honors it when we are willing to do just that. Amen. Well, I look forward to uh, continue on what's coming up next. Uh, we, we're going to be picking up this Sunday uh, with the second half of the story, so to speak, from when Jesus gave orders to go to the other side. Well, this is now they're at the other side. What happens there? Then they leave and go somewhere else and what happens there? And so, uh, of course, this man is told he can then go home at the end of this uh, last story that we're going to be covering this Sunday in, in, in 9, 1 through Eight. So we'll start in 828. He's told to go home. So I find that a, a, an interesting book into the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. But this guy's now restored back to his home. Looking forward to it. Compassionate and gracious is the Lord. This is our God, this is our God. Slow to anger and abounding in love. This is our God, this is our God.